If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Greetings. I'm not saying hello and welcome to Empire because that would just be a bit of overkill. This is not, this is a full start to the podcast. That's what this is uh, because events, dear boys and girls, have overtaken us. Um, we are very shortly going to hear an excellent podcast with our special guest, Aisha Jalal, about Muhammad Ali Jinnah. But we needed to tell you that we know this is a momentous occasion in the history of empire where a man of Indian origin is being anointed the prime minister of Great Britain, Rishi Sunak. So we are going to, I promise, return to that subject in the future. But first of all, here's the programme we recorded, can you tell, a little bit earlier. Hello and welcome to Empire with me. You are really annoying. Actually, you know what? There's been a tweet about it. Okay, who are you? Who are you, first of all? Me. You're William Dalrymple, who's being very naughty. Aaron is going to be delighted because he says, um, absolutely loving Empire. However, I am missing William Dalrymple's enigmatic pauses. Is this something that can return? Is this why you are being like this? It's going to be so quick. It's going to be such a long recording. Anyway, <laughs> thanks very much for staying with us. Um, so we're, Amazingly. We're, amazingly. <laughs> putting up with our nonsense. Idiots. <laughs> so what what are we doing today william pull yourself so, together sorry, what are we doing today, today. why are we here why are so people listening we did a wonderful episode uh, a while back now um before the queen died and before we we went, veered off our chronological mm. progression from the east india company through the raj into jolly and wallabag uh and then we did this wonderful one with Gandhi. Oh, yes. With Ram Guha. Yeah, that was good. Uh, and now we, in a sense, need to go back to, to, to that mainline story, the story of how uh, we'd done how British rule developed in India, how it reached its peak, how resistance began. And we did Gandhi, but we didn't do, or only glancingly touched on, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who's the figure who, in a sense, in many ways, one of the most remarkable men in the 20th century. How many mm. people personally push through an entirely new country onto the map of the world, uh, who develop an entire movement that involves millions of people. And yet he's someone who is very little known in Britain, who is turned into a one-dimensional hate figure mm. in India, who is revered equally one-dimensionally uh, as this sort of uh, Islamic austere figure uh, in a caracal hat in Pakistan who sits on the banknotes, but whose humanity is lost. And when he appears in movies, like uh, we kept going back to talking about the well, Richard the Attenborough, the Attenborough Gandhi, Gandhi movie, yeah, yeah. and there yeah. he's, he's this kind of um, caricature figure. He's, he, and he says, taciturn. Uh, he mutters mm. uh, around saying, I will have India divided or I will have India destroyed, which of course is a completely... Never do that again. Unhistorical. That's <laughs> too scary. I do my Tom never, Holland moment. Never do that again. <laughs> bad okay. imitations. At least I'm not singing Marilyn Monroe. But you're right. So there was there was the Attenborough. There was the Attenborough version of him, and then there was a later version of Jinnah, uh, which was played by Christopher Lee, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> normally, famously of the Hammer House of Horror and Dracula. Yeah. So you know, this is a man who is either unknown here in this country, or if he is known, it is not in a positive light. Uh, but yet, yeah, as we say. Actually, 
whether you approve of the idea of Pakistan, regard it as the, uh, the, the, saver, the saving grace that saved Indian Muslims, or whether you regard it as one of the great disasters of the 20th century, this is a man who altered history in a real and tangible way, and we need to know more about him. We absolutely do. So um, let's talk about the, the beginnings of, of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. So he was born in uh, 1876. In Karachi. In Karachi. Correct. Which is the... the so he's, he's the eldest of seven children. His father is a merchant. His mother, uh, Mithibai, is a huge influence and not in a, his life. And not a, a, a big merchant. He's no. he's two or three rungs down the social economic pecking order from, for example, Nehru, uh, who was his great rival uh, later in life. Uh, he's born in a rented apartment. His father runs boats up and down the, the Sindhi coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Crucially, differently from almost all the other major figures uh, who who shepherd India towards independence, he is a Muslim. And not just is he a Muslim, but he's a very particular sort of Shia Muslim from a small minority sect. So so listen, those who don't know, I mean, a lot of people will know Shias and Sunnis, but just speak a little bit about what the difference is between Shias and Sunnis and why it is remarkable that a Shia Muslim becomes such an enormous figure in Pakistan. So... Most Muslims are Sunnis, but there is a minority uh, within Islam, the Shia faith, which uh, looks to Ali as its uh, figure of, of great reverence. And sh- there were Shia states in Indian history, particularly in the Deccan uh, at various points, but it was in 17th century Iran uh, that you have the Safavids converting the entire Iranian nation to Shiism, uh, and suddenly it becomes a major player. But Jinnah is not even um, just part of this minority Shia faith. Uh, he is a Koja Muslim, mm-hmm. which is like a minority within a minority. Ironic, because these are now the people, of course, which are getting it every time there's a communal upsurge in Pakistan. It's the it's the Shias who are getting it in the neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and only uh, this year we had more bombs in schools. Um, in Shia schools. In Shia schools in and Shia, Shia, and Shia yeah. uh, places of yeah. worship. So this is a, a man who's born into a modest background, trading background. His father uh, is this figure in a turban in the in the black, the only black and white picture I think that survives yes. of him yeah. looks very unlike his, his son because we're so used to seeing his, well, his son. son yes yeah, so yeah. those who don't know he's angular I mean the, the picture if you do have a picture in your head and the picture that's on the banknotes and, and things in Pakistan is of a, a very striking angular almost lupine face um, who wears thin, sometimes thin frail gaunt, sometimes wears a monocle uh, so just going back to the beginnings you know it, from all accounts of, of his birth he was a very fragile infant that's what we are given to believe weighed only weighed a few pounds less than normal we're told um and i love this description of him by his sister fatima who is a massive figure in his life fatima and the only member Jinnah. of his family who he's at all close to certainly. absolutely right yeah. so fatima Jinnah says uh, even in the playground my brother had a sense of superiority <laughs> you know so although he may not have been you know ostensibly born to greatness he believed there was greatness in him and then he has this odd education where he goes both to a madrasa and a Christian missionary school. So throughout his life, he maintains, in a sense, this odd bipolarity between, on one hand, being very much a Muslim, although he is a secular Muslim, he drinks, he doesn't go much to mosques, mm. he doesn't um, uh, 
He play will out be the a, religious He's still act. a kid at the moment. Come on, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> he's just playing marbles in a superior way. <laughs> Nonetheless, from this basis, yeah. he, he has this, this double identity. On one yeah. hand, culturally at least, very strongly a Muslim. And on the other hand, he embraces Western culture much more than, say, Gandhi ever did. He is. He has famously in his peak in uh, uh, at the end of his life, I think 200 Savile Row suits. Yeah. He never wears the same silk tie twice uh, uh, when fighting a, a, a law case. Uh, he has dapper co-respondent shoes and he wears this monocle, which, you know, makes us look like sort of Bertie Wooster or something. I don't know whether this is true and someone it doubtless is going to... Um tweet us or email us but I heard that, that he modelled that on Chamberlain that he liked the way too. Chamberlain looked yeah. in his monocle so anyway there he is he's going to these two different schools these two different cultures but at the same time when he's a really a little kid he's only sort of well, barely a teenager his father is pulling him into the family business so he has to be good at math he has to be good at arithmetic he is helping in the trade business as well he has to grow up pretty quickly and then he has this extraordinary break at the age of 16 a business associate, a British business associate of his father offers him an apprenticeship in a London mm. law firm. This is you know, a complete life-changing Douglas, moment. Douglas, Graham and company. Yeah, no yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he moves to London, age 16, on his own. And he is transformed by this. He very much takes to London. He goes to the British Museum. Mm. He loves the stage. Is it the old Vic or the young Vic? But he, he, he it's starts the old acting. Vic. The old so Vic. He's, so he, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I didn't know this until we started sort of um, uh, looking into his his history, but he loved, he was a performer. He had it in him. He used to like going to Hyde Park Corner and watching the orators and watching how they could command the attention of, of hundreds of people. And he actually went to the old Vic and said, look, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to get a job here as an actor. And they liked him. They, they, they took him on. They took him on for a period Very of time. Very good speaker. Yeah. But at the same time at all this is going on, he's also proving himself in the legal department. And only three years later, aged 19, he's called to the bar and becomes a barrister. And that is, I mean, this will make him, this yeah. is an extraordinary leap from this minor trader's son. Because by the time he goes back to India, this will make him literally the only Muslim barrister. In Bombay. I think he has the accolade of being the youngest Indian called to the bar when he is actually called to the bar in 1896, which is, you know, a, a very big deal. And again, whatever else you, you think of him politically, he has this rapier mind. Uh, he is famous for his precision, his uh, attention to detail and a kind of rapier wit when he's, when he's on his feet uh, and has, as this, this joy of acting shows, an extraordinary ability to communicate so yes to, in a cut glass english uh, accent let yeah. by the way i mean because he has absorbed the 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 accent in a way that uh, he's able to use it as as you say like a, a rapier i like again i go to sister fatima who I, I i just love her descriptions of him she said he wanted to discover himself on the highways of eminence and fame <laughs> you know so again it, i don't know whether deliberate or or just inherent but he thinks that there is greatness ahead of him and he becomes interested in politics in london and he uh, associates himself with dadabai naroji uh, 
uh, and get, who's being elected to the British Parliament. Yes, the, fir- the first yeah. Indian ever to be elected, I believe it was Camden that he represented. Uh, yeah, there'd been, yeah. He, one other was elected, Dai Somba, the son, uh, famously oh. the adopted oh. son of the Begum Samru, but that election was cancelled due oh. to corruption. This is in the Okay, 18, we don't talk about him. Why did you talk about him? We don't talk about him. Okay. Fascinating character, a different story. <laughs> okay. I've written a, a long piece of the Observer, if anyone wants to go look it up in the Observer website. Right, okay, so here he is, cut glass accent. He's learned, can I just say something? Hang on a minute. Gujarati, rapier wit, very clever, call to the bar. Sounds, sounds a bit a like, somebody like someone else. else we know, does he not? <laughs> but a person well, that he, sounds he, like Gandhi, he is destined right? never ever to go no, with Gandhi. But they yep. do they do really have sort of parallel trajectories in many ways. And also <laughs> the son of a merchant, you know. Wonderfully when we did Gandhi, <laughs> if there was a dating app in the eighteen nineties, Gandhi and Jinnah would be bad. I know, look, looking back, talking to the, the preeminent historian in the world on Gandhi saying that I'm an idiot, but I guess I, just, <laughs> I didn't think he'd like but he loved it. I do stand by it. Anyway, when does politics start to figure in his life, William? So he takes an interest in politics in London, but in 1896, age 19 again only, he returns to Bombay. And this, I say, you know, three years later, um, he's transformed from this minor trader's son to one of the, in a sense, you know, he's got the the highest accolade that an Indian of the time could have. He's not only gone to London, studied there, not only done well in law, uh, in, in, in law, uh, but he's actually been called to the bar younger than anyone else, uh, aged only 19. And in Bombay, he's now a super eligible, very dashing figure. Mm. He, he comes back already with uh, these extraordinary uh, ties and Savile Row suits. And he is immediately caught up in politics. And just a bit of context here, we, we kind of sometimes talk about both Gandhi and Nehru and Jinnah as sort of um, uh, entering the Congress Party. The Congress Party had only been set up 10 years earlier. Right. 1885, the Congress Party is set up by a Scotsman, Alan Octavian Hume. Yes, that's right. Uh, and initially, it's little more than a sort of debating society for London returned Indian toffs. But it's beginning to get up momentum. Ten years later, 1896, uh, Jinnah is back in Bombay, the only Muslim barrister uh, in the entire yeah, city. But he has been, I mean, we're sort of forgetting that he was married off at quite a young age as well. But then he loses his first wife. His first wife sort of dies. And so does his mother die and leaves him rootless, which sort of explains the... The migration from his home place in Karachi to Bombay, you know. So again, like Gandhi, again, mm. parallel with Gandhi, he, yeah. he's, he's married off he's with a child, a child, a child yeah. bridegroom. Yeah. But unlike Gandhi, his wife dies. That's right. So he, yeah. there he is now. He is an eligible young man in his very smart suits in Bombay, which is a hip happening town even back then. Um, what happens to him in Bombay? He suddenly he suddenly actually becomes noticed. You yep. know, he becomes a man of substance in his own right, the man people talk about. So you get, for, I think, in, in letters of this time, the first thing, with, the first hint of what becomes his defining feature later on, which is this sort of harsh, precise legal mind that can actually be quite wounding and be quite cold. He mm. can, in the same way that in a law case, he's famous for being able to sort of trap his uh, opponents uh, in, a le- in a legal corner. Uh, so you see for the first time, in a sense, the... 
The steel. The steel. The steel. Yeah, steel is I exactly the right a, yeah, word. Yeah. yeah. A, a, aggressive, precise. Yeah. Very brilliant, uh, but not a warm man. Uh, mm. And this coldness is something which people will uh, will remark on more and more as, he, as his life goes on. Sarojini Naidu, yeah. who's very much on the Congress camp and very much with... A really interesting with, woman, with Nehru, by the way, Sarojini yeah. Naidu, yeah. Uh-huh. But she says that uh, you, you almost need a fur coat when Jinnah walks into a says, room. Is that what she says? <laughs> so look, he's uh, in Bombay, Indian National Congress takes him in. He's practicing law. He has got um, a position in the chambers of John McPherson, um, and and he, he's elected to the Imperial Legislative Council yeah. in 1909. Yeah. And and soon after that, soon after that, and he sort of does play some really important roles there. You know, he, he joins also the All India Muslim League soon afterwards, then becomes its president in 1916. And the crucial thing here is that this is unusual to be part of both Congress and the Muslim League. And by 1916, he's actually brought the two together into yeah. something called the Lucknow Pact. And he's hailed remarkably in retrospect as, as the, the apostle the unity. of Hindu-Muslim yes. unity. So not only is he someone who is not telling the Muslims to go their yeah. own way, he's actually saying, do not believe those who tell you this. Yes, We are one people. We will go forward together. Uh, we must not be divided. The British want us to be divided. We must but fight we, together. We will lose if we're divided. It's funny. We've been talking a lot about unity candidates in British politics lately. <laughs> anyway, so funny, there yeah, he yeah. is, the unity candidate, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Then something extraordinary happens to him again in 1980. There are some really very powerful and interesting women who pass into this man's life because he marries his second wife, uh, a Parsi woman, daughter of a very rich industrialist called Ratanbai Petit. Um, now, Ratanbai, t- uh, who becomes uh, Ratanbai Jinnah, is an extraordinarily young, 16, I think, when 16, they, they marry, yeah. 16. They meet in Darjeeling. Uh, right. Jinnah is staying with her father and sees this beautiful young creature and they secretly begin correspondence yeah. they meet uh, uh but when finally jinnah says uh in in a very uh illusory way oh, i wondered what you'd feel about uh, your daughter marrying someone from another faith and, yeah. and pettit says oh i think it's a splendid thing you know we all need to hang together and then jinnah makes it well. clear he's talking about <laughs> it's himself me. it's me and he's a lot older he's about 40 at the time he's 14 he's 40, this, this she's 16. 16 but she is a stunning woman i mean the pictures of her um She's just beautiful. She looks like one of those matinee idols from the silver screen, does she not? And, and again, you know, this this is something that's so far from the Jinnah of the Pakistani banknotes. He, at this point, is he, they, they've actually run off together. They elope mm-hmm. without the father's permission as soon as she's 18 years old, two years later. They have an open-top sports car. Uh, they drive up and down Marine Drive with her hair flying behind. And she's famous for her low-cut and revealing saris. Yeah. And, they are the it yeah. couple. They, they are, are the absolutely couple. it couple. So, you know, they're, they're, it seems as if the world is at their feet. And again, again, against the stereotype of him uh, in, in modern Pakistan, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's this famous occasion which Patrick French got into trouble for mentioning in his book. Patrick we French will, is a historian, of, uh, yeah, and a friend uh, of ours. Which we yeah. will probably get into trouble for bringing up, but allegedly... Um, <laughs> so let's, so turns, let's bring it up. Let's bring it okay. up. Okay. Turns up at an election rally and says, Jay, as she calls him, you know what I brought you for for lunch? And she says, uh, he says, no, I don't know. He says, ham sandwiches. Uh Uh, And uh, and he looks absolutely horrified because uh, certainly in public, of course, uh, as a a representative of, of the Muslim League, you do not want to be seen eating either pork or drinking whiskey, both of which he does. 
so glad you didn't mention it. Um, <laughs> so R- Ratty is though sort of deemed to be a bit of a firebrand as well, isn't she? She's not your, your typical Indian wife. She's she's not quiet. She doesn't like Gandhi's wife, you know, Kasurababai, who's like five feet behind him walking, doing whatever it is that that he wants to do. That's not Rati, is it? It's not. And as the post-war period gives way to the 20s, they begin to find difficulties in their relationship because Rati sounds like a sort of proto-hippie. She's into crystals and seances and sort of uh, mumbo-jumbo. And quite quickly, she actually moves out and takes a suite in the Taj Mahal Hotel. It's not uh, a slum, is it? Uh, it's quite, it's <laughs> it's quite a tough nice life there. if you're a Parsi yeah. heiress. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this coincides with a downturn in Jinnah's Let's political life. Let's talk about it, because this yeah. is a really pivotal moment in 1920, and it revolves around Gandhi. Gandhi. I mean, so these two these two are really unfortunate twins, because they are, you know, it's everything on paper says they ought to get on, but this cements an enmity that some argue may have divided a continent. So yes, talk, talk to this. So they've actually met earlier in 1914 when Gandhi's on his way back from South Africa. Uh, he stops off in London where there's parties given to him, where indeed our lovely uh, Princess, Princess Sophia, Sophia is at one uh, of those is, parties. Is present. Yeah. So at this yeah. pa- extraordinary party that we mentioned in the previous pod, yeah. not only do we have Gandhi and Sophia, but as I've just discovered from my research this morning, Jinnah <laughs> is also there. This is the place where Jinnah meets Gandhi at this party. I didn't know. Celebrating Gandhi's return wow. in London in 1914. Right. I didn't know that. And they talk fairly, they talk very briefly and, yes. and perfectly amicably. But Do we know what they talked about? They talk presumably politics. This is right. a political moment. Yeah. And and uh, Jinnah is in London because he's come back as part of the, I think, Imperial Legislative Council. Council. And right. he's already negotiating with the British. And this is all. So he's already an established figure in the Congress, in the freedom struggle. I'm just trying to so just visualise that because he's a tall chap. And there's Gandhi, who's a slight sparrow of a man. So there would have been a physical sort of looking up there, from Gandhi <laughs> to, to, to Jinnah. But um, Gandhi at this point, of course, is not yet wearing his homespun. No, this he's is not Gandhi homespun. Still, and, still and all the two of them are both feet. in their starch collars. Absolutely. Yeah. And Gandhi, Gandhi very much would have been the junior partner, I think, in that conversation even. But then two years later, they meet again in India. And they've both got the same patron, who's Gokli. So Gopal Krishna Gokhale, again, we, we've mentioned him before, but I think he's just such an important, interesting character. He is a man who is trying to hold Indian opposition together and make sure that they don't resort to violence. Because increasingly, there are calls to kick the British out by any violent means necessary. And particularly, he's struggling for the soul of the Inter- Indian National Congress. Um, him and a man called Lajpat Rai. Lajpat Rai, who is a much, he's a firebrand who says, you know, look, we've tried nicey, nicey. It's just not working. People like Bhagat Singh are are starting to bubble up and solidify their own um, strategies for getting the British out. And Gokhale is like, no, we just need peace. And Gokhale has written, will be the man, he hasn't done it yet, but he will be the man who writes to Gandhi to say, come here. You have successfully and non-violently overturned past laws in South Africa. Now we need you over here to teach us how to do the same. And I might be wrong about this, but I think when Gandhi and Jinnah meet next uh, on Indian soil, yeah. Gokhale is giving the party. He's, he, Gokhale is giving the party. Yeah. I believe it's at Jinnah's house, but it is Gokhale who's the hosting the party. And there is this very right. first hint of unease because Jinnah is the host. Yeah. Jinnah, Jinnah makes the speech. It's his house. And, and 
Gandhi, in a sense, takes the microphone, if, if there is a microphone, suddenly takes the stage. Yeah. And he says, I'm so pleased to see that not only is a Muslim part of the Congress, but that he is uh, in charge of this branch of it. And this is not something that Jinnah likes. And apparently no, it's a his bit, face... It is a bit condescending. It's condescending. It is, it's yeah. He's the big guy. He's, he's already established. From Gandhi come guy. lately, he's just arrived. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit rude, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are so many things about Jinnah in a sense that are remarkable, that he's this great lawyer, that he's already in the legislative yeah. council. That he's thin That he's taking on yeah. the British in court and, yeah, yeah, and opposing... Yeah. Very, he, he's a great one for taking minor details and yeah. showing up the hypocrisy of the British sure. in court, which he does very well. But and Gandhi doesn't say any of this. He doesn't he just say says, any of it. you're a Muslim. And also, this gives us an insight insight into the fact that actually Jinnah and others have pointed this out. It's thin-skinned. He doesn't yeah. he doesn't take this kind of jibe and then just forget it. He's not the kind of man who well, forgets it. Almost all these characters yeah. at this point are very thin-skinned. Mm. And, and Nehru is notoriously thin-skinned later in life. Mm. And all these people, you know, are in a sense the, the celebs of the time. They're glamorous figures. They've got enormous followings. And like, as so often the case with, with famous celebs, uh, do not like criticism or opposition. I can't remember when. So Gandhi does another little jibe <laughs> at him at some point where um, Jinnah is speaking and Gandhi says, it would have been really lovely if you would have uh, spoken in Gujarati. <laughs> Why don't you speak in Gujarati? And, and Jinnah does not Jinnah actually Bhai. speak good he doesn't Gujarati. Speak, no, yeah. and so it, again... Shall we take a break and come I back? I think time for a break, because what we're about to turn to is the moment when this relationship, which is initially cordial, but is now... Chilling. Chilling. A little bit. Actually breaks into. Yeah. Welcome back. You're listening to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Drumple. Right. So, okay, before the break, we were talking about this, um, it's almost... A dance that's going on, a pas doble between Gandhi and Jinnah, where they are sort of on the same page, but they are slightly rubbing each other up the wrong way, it seems. But then this turns into attrition. At what point? When 1920. Does it? There yeah. is a big Congress meeting in Nagpur and Jinnah, the established figure who's already there on stage, has his nose completely put out of, out of joint by Gandhi, who's done returned to India now and gone round India uh, in, a, in a train, in a third-class carriage. Yeah. He's donned homespun and has, in a sense, now become, for the first time, the figure that we know. He's no longer the lawyer in the, no. in the, in the starch collar. He's in homespun. He's in a dhoti. Uh, and this is post Jallianwala Bagh, so yeah. he's now cemented his position as somebody who says no more to the British. Yeah. And the Indians listen to him. I think he's already gone to Champaran and he said to the Indigo growers, you do not have to live like this. These landlords are treating you very badly. They're not going to pay you any more rent. So he's he's proving himself to be a very successful and political the whole agitator. Style of Congress is changing. It's, mm. it's no longer the, the gentleman's club, which Jinnah was very happy in. Instead, you've got crowds of guys in white homespun turning up and sitting on the ground. Well, this is a point when Jinnah, you know, is going to be shouting at his Batman for giving him the wrong cufflink. Right. Uh, Jinnah's not going to sit on the ground. He's not going to wear white homespun. He's got 200 Savoy suits. He does not like this. But also, and again, this is something which goes against the uh, the established stereotype. The thing that uh, Jinnah particularly does not like is, according to him, it's Gandhi who introduces religion into politics right. because he brings with him a lot of his ashram stuff. Uh, there's going to be prayer meetings. There's going to be uh, vegetarianism. There's going to be uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, talk about God and religion. Uh, he he describes the 
free India that he wants as Ram Raja, as, as the as the uh, as the realm of Ra, the Lord rule, Rama, the rule yeah. of Lord Rama, as yeah. in the Ramayana, as yeah. in the idea of you know, that, the, I suppose the British equivalent would be Arthur's rule, but it's divine. It's 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 a perfect divinely sanctioned Hindu do you not world. Find this, do you not find this really weird, actually, that he did do that? Because, uh, you know, in later life, we'll know Gandhi as somebody who eventually dies because he's supposedly cutting too much slack to the Muslims by the hand of a Hindu fundamentalist who thinks he's not actually making India a Hindu country. He does so much to say this is a country for all different faiths. And yet here, he's doing something that is quite obviously going to rub up Jinnah and other Muslims up the wrong way. So Jinnah, who only four years earlier has been called the apostle of Hindu-Muslim unity, finds that Congress is simply for his taste becoming not only too too Mm. common in the sense the ordinary people are turning up sitting on the ground, but it's coming too Hindu. And that he, from this point, makes it his life's mission to build minority rights into whatever new India is being built because I think the thinking is if it's going to be Ram Raja, where do Muslims fit into yeah. that? If it, if it is a, a Hindu paradise, uh, what do you do with a fifth of the population, which is no, a quarter of the population at this point before Pakistan, uh, which is Muslim? And he's not on his own. I mean, there are other Muslim intellectuals who are equally worried about this. People like um, uh, Liaquat Ali, uh, people like uh, Alama Iqbal, who's a poet, who are all they sit there and they, they are having conversations about where do we belong? And important point here because on the same 1920s Nagpur Congress meeting tight religious titles are used not only is Gandhi called the Mahatma which is not incidentally a traditional Hindu title it's one that Annie Besant and yes. the theophysist and more specifically Madame Blavatsky comes up with. oh you talked about her brilliant she, she's nuts so there's this wonderful kind of, <laughs> kind of central European yeah. mystic who claims that she's receiving astral messages yeah. from Himalayan Mahatmas who are yeah. these old masters and part of this whole sort of soup of, of, of late Victorian early Edwardian spirituality and mysticism Gandhi gets given the title Mahatma Great, great Soul, soul. Yeah. Uh, and for Jinnah in his correspondent shoes and his spats this is all and, and his and his monocle this is all far too oh, you've just from, yeah, so, washy so, fluffy so Nagpur is where this kicks off because um, he, he refuses to address Gandhi as Mahatma and just keeps referring to him as Mr. Gandhi and he also refuses to give another Muslim leader the title Molana which is a, a, a Muslim Honorific. Uh, uh, because, and then this is an important point. What yeah. he's worried is not only is, is, is you know, there's going to be too much Hindu stuff going on. He doesn't want to awaken a specifically Islamic thing going on yeah. among India's Muslims. And this is something that's often forgotten, particularly in Indian historians who are talking about Jinnah. He is genuinely a secularist. He genuinely wants a, a, a yeah. secular thing to be replacing the British. And and in his view, by stirring up this stuff, by bringing religion into politics, you're letting uh, this very dangerous tiger out of the cage. And in a way, he's proved right, because you get the Khilafat movement, which is this, uh, the Ottoman emperor has just been deposed in, uh, in Istanbul and sent off to Nice. A lot of Indian Muslims are very upset about this. And you get one of the first examples of really vicious Hindu-Muslim fighting, breaking out as part of the Khilafat movement. And Jinnah can say, I told you so. Look what you've done now. But previously on this, in Nagpur, let's get <laughs> you back to Nagpur. Just a minute. So he, there he is saying, I'm not going to say Mahatma. And actually, something very interesting goes on at that meeting because a lot of followers of Gandhi start saying, sit down, Jinnah. Sit down. He's called the Mahatma. Call him the Mahatma. They start heckling him. He is not used to this kind of treatment from supposedly those who should be supporting him. 
following him. And this is a crucial point. You're quite right. We were veering off. So he's he's heckled. Uh, he's humiliated. Gandhi yeah. is the triumphant figure of the Nagpur meeting, 1920. And clearly, this is the moment when clearly uh, the God abandons Anthony, so to speak. This is the moment when uh, uh, Gandhi becomes the, the darling of the Congress and Jinnah goes off in a terrific huff. Yeah. And not only does he go off in a terrific huff, his whole personal life is darkening fast. By this stage, Rati is drinking. She's in a very bad way. She's still at the Taj. They're not She's still not, in the Taj and indeed yeah. in, I think... Um, 1929, she dies in that room, in the suite, in the Taj. And according to one of her relations, and this is highly disputed, and again, people may be offended by it, but there is good primary source evidence for this, she committed suicide. They do have a child together, Adina, who interestingly, and I know we're leaping about a little bit, but interestingly, because we may forget to tell you, we're just so bursting with things we want to tell you, <laughs> but Dina, after partition, chooses to stay in India. So And becomes part of a very prominent yeah. uh, Indian... Bombay Parsi family. Yeah, the Wadiers. Yeah. Anyway, so Gandhi, triumphant, Jinnah in the process of and eclipse. fuming. Fuming, mm. personal life falling apart. Mm. Uh, Rati doesn't like that this guy is, has fallen from grace. You know, the, the glamorous figure that she fell in love with is now a, a fallen angel. And all sorts of things. I mean, his enemies will say uh, that it's at this point that Jinnah becomes hardened embittered and this already very uh, uh steely lawyer becomes now the the chilly figure we talked about Ill? that you need a he's beginning to he smokes 20 cigarettes a day right. he's very frail but i don't think he's actually he hasn't got the tv that, that will TV eventually that kill will, him not yet okay but right. the, but his life is darkening so right. at this point having fallen out with gandhi having also we haven't mentioned it he opposes satyagraha yeah. So again, this slightly sort oh, yeah. of religious thing that uh, that Gandhi brings in this uh, non-violence ahimsa. It's all with Sanskrit terms. This is after this is after sort of the um, massacre where he is calling a de facto strike, general strike, but giving it the name uh, of Satyagraha that people are going to just have a day of worship. They're going to pray. But that, in effect, he's calling a nationwide halt. And every exactly time he does that. the thing which makes Gandhi's message so popular with so many simple conservative Indians, the fact that it's got the Sanskritic sounding, we're talking Ramraja, we're talking Ahimsa, all mm. these terms which are familiar from the epics and so on, is exactly what makes the secularist, tweed-suited, monocle Jinnah um, unhappy. And he actually says Satyagraha is the way for anarchy. Right, okay, so things are going very, very badly wrong. Uh, and he actually goes off in a half back to England. Oh, and, what, and what does he do in England? That's, that's where he sort of sits with other like-minded Muslims. 1930, he goes to London. So they're in London and they are just... Now, he's, he's found a lot of sort of like-minded individuals. He's sort of either lawyers or... Or again, Oxbridge graduates uh, like him who are Muslim, and they're all worried about what might become of them. That's right. And until the 1930s, most Indian Muslims had imagined that there would be a unitary state of India. Uh, but you're beginning to get ideas now of people talking about a separate Muslim. Uh, do they do they have a name for it? This they, is the dream. they have a name for it, but it's not. Uh, but it's it's not properly defined. The name okay. sort of is is a measure of quite how how woolly it is because Pakistan Pak means pure, yeah. But it also is an acronym, and I think it's Punjab is the P, yeah. Afghania, Afghania, is the A. Right, and so okay. again, sort of slightly yeah, geographically yeah. woolly version. Yeah. Kashmir, Kashmir is okay. the K. S the Sindh is the S, right. and I think Baluchistan. For the Tan, Pakistan. The, the Pakistan. Okay. 
So the person that comes up with this is a man called Chaudhry Ramat Ali, who produces a pamphlet in 1933, um, which puts this acronym together. But already you've had in 1930, Sir Muhammad Iqbal calling for a state for Muslims in British India. So this is the idea, uh, is a new idea. Yeah. It's coming out of, uh, out of uh, Indians in Britain, interestingly, at this point. Mm. And Iqbal uh, is, by the way, poet, for those who don't know, he's very celebrated. Everyone in Pakistan knows who he is, but uh, Alama Iqbal, is a celebrated philosopher and poet. Exactly. So, you know, this is, a dream, As, this is the dream of dreamers happening in so London. So yeah. while Gandhi is triumphant uh, among the, uh, the freedom struggle supporters in India, you have this other stuff going on with Indian Muslim leaders yeah. in London. Uh, okay, so there he is. He's with largely Cambridge intellectuals. Is that right? I know, with lawyers. Yeah. He is on the fringe of politics now. He goes yeah. to two of the roundtable conference, which is when Congress starts negotiating with the Maharajas and with the British. And there's various ideas now for, is it going to be dominion status? Is it going to be independence? What kind of independence? He doesn't go to the third. So he's, you know, this guy who had been very much at the centre of things uh, in the immediate post-war period is now right on the edge. And 1934, he's called back to India because the Indian Muslims now want him to be their leader. And for the first time, you see Jinnah take up this specifically Muslim league identity. So that he'd is left the, the birth Congress. of the Muslim league, is that? He'd left yeah. the... the, the um, the, the Congress Party. And, and initially, I think in the 1920s, it started trying to float another uh, independence party called the Swaraj Party, right. which doesn't go anywhere. Right. So he's back. He's got the Muslim League. He's trying to build the Muslim League into a significant political force in India. But it's it's hard work. It's hard work. The, the Muslim League is not doing well in elections. And Gandhi is triumphant. I mean, you know, mm. Satyagraha is a, is a very effective weapon. It's a very popular weapon. People can see that it works against the British. Uh, and Jinnah has nowhere to go. He's, he's, he's a, also quite isolated because like, you've got other figures like Nehru who are completely drawn into Gandhi's orbit. And and again, Nehru is another thrusting young Oxbridge educated lawyer. Trinity College Cambridge, very, very brilliant from a, a rich UP family. So Nehru and Gandhi are this extraordinary double act. They're very different. Uh, Nehru is young, handsome. Uh, he in years to come, we know, will embrace big dams. Dams will be the new temples. Oh, he's very secular. Uh, he doesn't use specifically Hindu language in mm. his speeches. Um, he's suave, clever, uh, and, uh, and and very glamorous, but a very That's different a good figure. <laughs> yes. Very, very... Yeah. Um, he's a huge, huge fan of Gandhi and, and loves uh, Bapu. As he calls so it. that's right. Yeah. So Bapu, the other moniker that Gandhi now goes by, which again is going to put Jinnah's back up again because it means father, and 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 a lot of people now are calling him Bapu, which is a grassroots word that has come up. Uh, and so Jinnah is is left out of all this and um, comes back in 1934, uh, and his big moment comes only in 1939 when the idiotic. Uh, 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 frumpy, conservative, Scots toff, Lord Linlithgow, goes ahead and declares war uh, on behalf of India without even bothering to call in the Congress leaders or any of the Indian Muslim leaders and conferring with them. And this leads to a situation where in 1942, when the Japanese have done this huge blitzkrieg through Southeast Asia and are uh, on the very gates of India, Gandhi and the Congress leaders declare quit India. Mm. Uh, and are immediately jailed. 
And this creates a major opportunity for Jinnah because two years before Quit India, in 1940, for the first time, you get a formal demand for a separate homeland, Pakistan, in the Lahore Declaration. And many historians, particularly Aisha Jalal, who will be joining us uh, in a minute, um, thinks that this was just a bargaining tool, that he didn't actually He didn't want, mean it to break. He didn't mean it to break. Uh-huh. He wanted to use the threat of this and use this declaration as a means to pressurize both the British and the Hindus to give minority rights uh, encoded for the Muslims so that they would never be endangered by uh, a, a, a Hindu India, which even then uh, was beginning to embrace the ideas of Hindutva and... Uh, Hindutva a kind of Hindu- being a hardline political pol- political. Hinduism. So this is the period yeah. when Savarkar is coming up with ideas. He's looking at what's Again, going on. Again, Veer Savarkar um, is, is a militant leader who spent time in London, actually sort of creating a, a bomb factory in Muswell Hill. Very interesting story. We might I come back to that. it later. Oh, yes. Uh, so, yes, he's, Veer Savarkar is... is Again, believes in violent overthrow. So that is that's his story. Which, of course, further worries the Muslims because they think they're going to be marginalised. They're going to be right on the edge of things, and it's partly this which which accelerates the Muslim demand for a separate. But homeland. also, but also, they're, they're, they've got a seat at the table now because what happens is a difference now that happens. So after World War One, where Gandhi was fully involved in, we must fight for Britain. Britain's cause is just. Uh, I will go and fight myself if you give me the uniform, you know, all, all of this kind of thing. And is so severely let down by the end of the war when nothing is delivered. No, in fact, they just get the Rowlett Act, which we talked about in, in the episode on, on Jallianabad. This time round, Nehru, Gandhi, Indian National Congress are not having it. You do not declare war on India's behalf without talking to us. Who gives you the authority? We are Indians. This is India. You don't get to make that decision. So... The International Congress leadership is against the war. They are telling people not to help Britain. They are telling people it's a complete opposite of what they said during World War One. And as a result, they are entirely scooped up and thrown into prison. So enti- you have the whole sort of decapitation of the Indian National Congress and hundreds of people are picked up and thrown in prison, which leaves the field clear for Jinnah and the Muslim League. And Jinnah already is now, not only has he got this uh, if if you take Aisha Jalal's version of it, certainly, because obviously this is highly disputed. Oh yes, we're going to hear from Aisha. Many- she she is to Jinnah, by the way. What what Ram Gua was to Gandhi, an yeah. absolute. You know, we we've got the, the woman, Rolls Royce of, uh, of of historians on and this fantastic book, The Sole Spokesman, yeah. that remains the great work on Jinnah. And so, not only according to Aisha is Jinnah using the nineteen forty Declaration to uh, pressurize for Muslim minority rights. Uh, and 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 saying that you know, this is this is, and he's telling his friends privately uh, that you know we don't really want this we're just going to uh, use this as a, as a bargaining chip, um, but this begins to go out of hand because the Muslims now uh, many of them do uh, decide that they whatever Jinnah thinks that they want this separate homeland with the growing RSS they think they're not safe in India, and um, you see a massive increase in support for the. Muslim League. Earlier, Congress was really the only game in town, and the Muslim Leagues pick up very few votes in in the elections. But with the Congress leaders uh, in jail, with increasing polarization, you now see the popularity of the Muslim League 
increasing enormously and 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 muslims now decide to vote en masse for the muslim league and not for the congress and and those who believe in divide and rule say you know part of the muslim league's success is that britain has for years been fostering this idea of a muslim identity so for you know for the first time ever people are asked to fill in forms where they tick are you a hindu or a muslim or a sikh whereas you know once people were indians and this has been going since what the 1916 or i mean since sort of around the time of the first world war you've had you've had these separate mm. electors and this is something separate that electors Jinnah, yeah yeah I mean, separate that's electors, important. and yeah. this is something that Jinnah initially strongly opposes yeah but now it's actually helping him it's helping, helping him because there is well, now the an identity actually, when he first got yeah. elected in was it 1916 to the mm. uh, electoral council i think it is as a muslim member so although he actually opposes this um it is something which acts obviously in his favor so Jinnah is making hay while the, the Congress is in prison. And when the elections finally happen after the war, the Muslim League enormously increases its vote share. And many, many uh, Indian Muslims who'd previously supported Congress have gone over to the Muslim League. That Jinnah has, has worked very hard during the war while uh, Nehru is sitting in prison writing his memoirs. Gandhi is, their wives uh, are, yeah, their yeah, mother, parents yeah. are, everybody is, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's in prison. Uh-huh. Uh, except, except, and... Jinnah is also sort of cozying up to the British, and he's talking about the idea of uh, of a Pakistan, which will he hints be somehow in alliance with the British, with with Great Britain, uh, and he's reaching out to people like Churchill uh, and floating the sort of idea that somehow uh, you know the, all these sort of uh, anarchic congressmen may not be against you, but we're loyal, uh, even if uh, there is independence, you can depend on us, the, the Indian Muslims, for support. So all these. These ideas are beginning to be floated. But again, privately, Jinnah is apparently telling his supporters that this is a bargaining chip, that he's going to use it to shore up minority rights uh, and to frighten the congressmen uh, into conceding things that otherwise they might not concede. See, I, I know I should, yeah. I should when, when Aisha comes on very shortly, um, it describes his, his, his legal mind, that these are all strategies that a barrister would use to win a case. But I've also heard him described as a chess player, that he goes, you know, I, if I move this here, this will go there and then I can move this way. Exactly that. And where things begin to get wrong is in 1946, when Jinnah, uh, who has had his nose put out of joint by various things that the Viceroy has proposed, says that we're going to have to respond with direct action day. Uh, And this is the 16th of August, 1946. And this is the moment that serious, large-scale communal violence begins to break out in India. And in that sorrowful uh, vein, I think I think we ought to bring in Aisha Jalal because this is a, almost a it's, a, it's a precursor to what will become partition, is the kind of communal violence on a scale. Massive scale. That gives you an indication of what is around the corner. And what is new about it is that you have suddenly a, a population that has lived cheek by jowl in areas that are mixed all over India. Suddenly now you find such violence that Hindus begin to move into Hindu areas, Muslims begin to move into Muslim areas, and you get horrors for the first time. You get there's, the, the the book I always I remember being horrified by when I was first reading this was Nirad Chowdhury's memoir, mm. and he talks about um, a group of Hindus tying down a Muslim to the railway tracks in Calcutta. This is a deeply upsetting listen story. So if you are squeamish, just skip forward forward 30 seconds. If you don't like, if you don't want squeamish, but just to give a measure of the sort of horrors. And they say that there was, there's there's this engineer there and he's got a drill and he drills a hole in the guy's skull so that blood will drip out slowly and he will die slowly. And he times it 
on his Rolex watch. That's the sort of Nirad Chowdhury precise observation that makes you horrified. He also talks about when he goes to uh, to Delhi later on, he sees um, these middle-class women breaking into a, a looted Muslim cosmetic shop and just helping themselves to hand cream. Uh, it is a strange way to uh, introduce our, our guest. But Aisha Jalal, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire podcast. We were just talking about Direct Action Day. We're just trying to get our head around Direct Action Day. Um, perhaps tell us from, from your perspective, why did that happen? After the 45, well, 45, 46 elections, uh, uh, the Muslim League uh, got, got the largest number of votes in Punjab, some 70 odd. Uh, but it was locked out of power because the Akali, the Panthic Sikhs would not uh, forge an alliance with them. And so the Congress and the rump of the British collaborators in Punjab, uh, unionists, uh, they formed a, a ramshackle government. And the Muslim League party was incensed uh, and they took to direct action. The direct action in Calcutta got out of hand. Could, could you, again, for those that don't know, it, what do you mean by out of hand? Oh, what, what happens in, in, in Calcutta is that there is the, 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 the city's gangs try to use the, the day, which has been declared a holiday, uh, and there's a carnage that, that is carried out. Uh, uh, and it's the underworld. Uh, Calcutta underworld plays a very crucial role. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and things got, get completely out of hand. What's the sort of scale of the bloodshed on, on that day? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are killed. I mean, sort of, uh, uh, and Jena, and, and it's laid, laid, the, the blame is laid on Jena's door. Uh, by many. Uh, and it, I, I mean, all I can say is that I don't believe that Jinnah was directly responsible. He was responding. Uh, I mean, he didn't expect this to happen. I mean, it was certainly not something that he was calling for. Some historians blame Surawadi, the, 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 the Muslim leader in Calcutta. Do you think he must bear responsibility for the beginning of this bloodshed? I mean, insofar as he, it was under his uh, you know, watch, uh, he has to take some responsibility. But my understanding is that it wasn't necessarily his goons who were going and doing it, but it was the Calcutta underworld. It was a circumstantial situation that led to this. The, the direct sort of the, the political marches that then turned violent, the numbers that we have, the estimates that we have of, of people hurt, 15,000 injured, an estimated 10,000 people killed, five days of violence. The British don't come out for five days to quell it. And then this violence spreads like a wildfire to other parts of India. Bihar, and for many, then Punjab. Punjab, indeed. And, and for many, this is the first indication or even just a, a precursor of what might happen if there is partition. This is the very first time that on this scale, Hindus and Muslims are fighting and life is lost in this and way. And killing each other in and a massive... And killing each other for politics, you know, not for, for this this notion of what will come after the British leave. So that is, that is something very new to the consciences on both sides, is what I'm saying. And it should, I mean, surely, I mean, this is, you know, for, for people who are younger like myself, we look back and go, my God, you saw all of that bloodshed on both sides. You both saw this. Did it not make you stop? Did it not make you think there must be another way because it will just be amplified, as you quite rightly say, to the nth degree if this country is partitioned? Well, I mean, that's the point. That's the question that was asked of Nehru. How could you do this? And he said, we were very tired old men. Uh, that's what Nehru famously said. But, you know, at, 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 from another perspective, I, I, I do think that we read 
into the situation and assume things that uh, were perhaps not there. I mean, I believe that despite the violence, uh, there was also always an opportunity for some reconciliation uh, and some sort of an agreement. I mean, until the very end, I mean, when people say, when did partition become inevitable? I say, well, never, it never did. It's just sort of, you know, if you look at the, look, look at the situation closely from Punjab's perspective, uh, where nobody thought their province would be partitioned, I mean, you know, I mean, what we haven't discussed is that that you know, 1945-46 elections were held um, uh, on on uh, without clarification that a vote for Pakistan could result in the partition of Punjab and Bengal. Uh, so, I mean, it's really dubious basis on which elections are held. And once the Muslim League wins the elections, it's clearly demanding undivided Punjab and Bengal for Pakistan. So that's the real problem. I mean, the and when people found themselves on the wrong side uh, of the divide once once June 3rd plan is announced. I mean, if you were a minority, you became a victim. And if you were uh, a majority, you somehow could have become a perpetrator of the violence. So that's the tragedy uh, at the end of the day. But I would sort of complicate the problem. I mean, you've, you've ascribed all the ills to the violence and not sufficiently to the political failures that led to the violence. So in... Radcliffe comes in, um, begins to draw his line. What's what's Jinnah's reaction when he realizes that he's that he's going to receive much less than he'd hoped for? Well, I mean, he, he's it's, it's kept a secret, isn't it? I mean, I mean, uh, the, the decision to partition he's opposed to in principle, but he's never told what he's getting uh, uh, until after the fourteenth of August, uh, because Mountbatten delays the the, the uh, I mean, publicizing uh, the Radcliffe uh, boundary award uh, in Punjab. And what is his reaction when he sees it? He's furious because because uh, um, Gurdaspur is awarded to uh, Congress, even though Gurdaspur uh, had a Muslim majority, because they wanted to give the, the India access to Kashmir. Mountbatten is on his papers, make it clear that he told uh, Nehru he couldn't have Kashmir and Nehru wept. Uh, so he had to be given Kashmir. And he calls it, Jinnah calls it a mutilated, moth-eaten... Truncated, mutilated, moth-eaten Pakistan. And he, he used that, that word first in 1942. Uh, and that's exactly what he does get eventually um, uh, in 1947. Uh, and he tells um, uh, Mountbatten he wants uh, an award. He wants undivided Punjab and Bengal to be awarded to him. And Mountbatten says, nothing doing. And he says, well, I can't accept. And he says, if you can't accept, then I'll accept on your behalf, Mr. Jinnah. So that's a squeeze play for you if there is one. And by this stage, violence is spreading in all directions. Violence spreads, uh, I mean, after the Calcutta killings of August uh, 46, uh, the real uh, violence begins when with the announcement uh, by Attlee that the British are quitting by June 1948. The first casualty is the unionist government uh, in Punjab. Uh, Khizr Hayat resigns and there's violence in Rawalpindi. Uh, absolutely horrific violence uh, uh, that that sort of combs through Punjab. Uh, so there are very, very, I mean, I talk about different cycles of violence, but the one that really, I mean, after after June third, the violence is much greater. Is it inevitable this violence? Do you think, or is it organised and 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 actually provoked? 
That's really an excellent question. And I think that uh, I will say that nobody can take away the discursive aspects of Hindu-Muslim differences, political differences, and what people made of them. But the evidence is overwhelming that it was not organized violence by the high commands of either the Congress or the Muslim League, or for that matter. I mean, at some level, you can say the RSS and the Muslim League National Guard can be implicated in certain locales. But this was not a planned arrangement. What did happen, on the other hand, is that when you demarcated certain areas as going to India and certain as going to Pakistan, minorities who found themselves on the wrong side were targeted. Their properties were taken over. By who? By men uh, who I call not, uh, I mean, I, I call them banded uh, uh, individuals. Uh, they were frequently demobbed soldiers because the demobilized soldiers of the Second World War who were disaffected, played a very crucial role in the heightened violence of Punjab. Because they've got guns. Mm, guns and training. Yeah. Homemade bombs, homemade bombs. So, so, so what basically happened was that in certain locales where they were armed, uh, where men acquired ammunition, they were able to bring about a change in the balance of power. Uh, they could go anywhere uh, grab the properties, grab whatever they wanted. That's what happened. And there was no one to counter them. The Boundary Commission was wrapped up. So that's basically what happened. The British troops are kept in barracks. The British didn't want to get their hands dirtied in what they regarded as India's periodic communal violence or communal madness, as they called it. They didn't want to get implicated. As it was, the bureaucracy and the police had got thoroughly politicised during the uh, during the war years. Um by Congress and lead propaganda. And the British didn't want to get involved. I mean, the, the references being made to the, to the level of the bureaucracy and the army uh, in the 40s was that they reached oriental standards uh, in terms of bias. So the British were really, really concerned not to get involved. But that only made that things that much worse. The, the, the turmoil that's going on in the country, um, there is also sort of turmoil going on within Jinnah's body. So at this point, when does he discover that he's, he's a very ill man? Oh, he knows, I think, uh, much earlier. I mean, you know, uh, I know that there are people who think that if Mr. Jinnah had died uh, before 47, there would have been no partition. But I really think that this is, again, putting everything squarely on Jinnah's personality and forgetting that Mr. Jinnah was a vakil, a lawyer, representing the interests of certain Muslim uh, interests. Uh, those interests were not going to die away with Jinnah. So I think this is a rather unfortunate uh, uh, presumption that had we known that Jinnah was dying, we would not have partitioned. I think they would have to have arrived at a different kind of arrangement uh, for this to happen. You can't just sort of think that Jinnah was the only reason for partition. I think that's a very myopic view. Sure. But many people who, who were there at the time and who, who were not ill-disposed to the aspirations of, uh, of the Muslim League or, or were interested in preserving minority rights, maintained that if you'd had a more pliable, you've had a more warm, less tired, less ill, if you had Liaquat Ali Khan, for example, uh, that there wouldn't have been the, the, the bitterness, there wouldn't have been the, uh, the level of hatred which there was by this stage. Do, do you think that's wrong? I think Jinnah not being there would have created a slightly different dynamic, but it would not have wished away the Muslim demand for a Pakistan. Um, now, to say that Mr. Jinnah was only bargaining, I mean, here again, I, I, I feel that this again suggests that it was only Jinnah's, um, uh, you know, 
evil presence that did this, which ignores a whole history of political dynamics in South Asia, I mean, in, in, in the regions. It just ignores regional politics altogether. When when partition takes place, Jinnah keeps his house on Malabar Hill and, and obviously thinks that he can go still backwards and forwards and that it's going to be a, a an open border and, 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 and that maybe even India and Pakistan will be friends. When do you think that the reality begins to dawn on him that it's going to be a, a, a very, very bitter divorce? Well, I think that he never thought uh, this would come to, I mean, it would come to that. Let me give you some examples. Um, uh, people that I interviewed at the time I was writing the sole spokesman um, told me, uh, who knew him very well and his sister, Fatima Jina, that they, uh, this one woman told me that she interviewed Fatima and asked her, so what are you going to do with this Aurangzeb Road house in Delhi? And she said, oh, we'll keep it. We'll keep coming and going. Uh, uh, and then in 1945, he's buying a house in Shimla. In 1947, he calls, he wants to call the first meeting of the Pakistan Constituent Assembly in Delhi until Nehru says there is no room for Mr. Jinnah here. And his, and his vision of his, his Pakistan is one where Hindus can live, where Sikhs can live, where they can practice their own faith. And that's something that's... Um, you know, I think uh, uh, forgotten a lot. What does he actually say about the pluralism of the new Pakistan? Any, I mean, this has nothing to do with the, with the business of the state. Uh, you are free to go to your temples. You're free to go to your mosques. And he says, in time, this will cease to matter anyway. This is what he says uh, uh, in his famous 11th August 1947 speech, the first it gives to the Constituent Assembly. And and finally, finally, when we spoke to Ramachandra Gua, he he was and said said something which startled a lot of um, the British listeners to this podcast. That in India, um, were it not for his international reputation, there is a great move to try and wash the collective memory of Gandhi by the present incumbent. You know, he's inconvenient. His his ideas of of um, pluralism. And nonviolence and all of them. well, pluralism mostly, and and everything else that comes with it, are an anathema to some people in power. In Pakistan, I've heard you say, and it, and and I'm going to say it in the in the way that um, we might understand it, that there's almost a bracelet of what would Jinnah do? He would do what I'm doing. You know, it's a sort of rush to claim Jinnah as a trump card for every action. Uh, that goes on. Can you just speak to that and 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 just wrap us up with what would he think of Pakistan if he looked at it today? I think he'd just be appalled and he would just be lost because there's nothing there. I mean, the biggest tragedy for the man who, who liked to project himself as a defender of minority rights, Pakistan's dismal record on minority rights would appall him. Uh, he was a man who known to be a stickler for constitutional law I mean, and, and rule of law. Uh, uh, he uh, fathered a country uh, where the rule of law is a joke. Uh, where where whoever comes uh, defines the law. So I think at every level, Jinnah is, uh, I mean, this is uh, a, a country that has turned its back on the vision of the man, uh, what he wanted, a moderate democratic country. Um, but that said, um, everybody still uh, uses him um, for their purposes uh, to, 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 to claim that they are the best representatives of Jinnah's dream. Uh, so that's the kind of paradox that Pakistan is facing. I see it actually as hopeful. Uh, it's only when they completely abandon Jinnah, which I thought they would under after Zia, it hasn't happened. So there's clearly some tension still there to be resolved. And that gives those of us um, who think that we understand Jinnah or what he wanted uh, some hope uh, that the struggle is still on. But in that sense, is he a, a tragic figure that someone who worked so hard to create something that would now appall him? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's how you look at things. Um, but my, my own sense is that the way Pakistan has disappointed him, uh, uh, I mean, in every way, people criticize him. They point out that he took draconian measures against the frontier ministry. Uh, but I do make the distinction about Jinnah doing things as governor general in the immediate aftermath of a devastating partition and, um, uh, and yet still doing things through the rule of law, uh, something that his successes have completely abandoned uh, uh, ever since. I think that's the bigger tragedy uh, than the fact that Jinnah, is, that Jinnah died as soon as he did. Uh, I think it's the vision and what he wanted that is the bigger tragedy. Aisha Jalal, thank you very, very much. From me, William Dalrymple. And from me, Anita Arnand. We'll be back with Empire, same time, next week. <laughs>